0: This is episode two of What the Fuck is Wrong With Us. I'm Arton Belletti and I'm joined this week by horror and dark fantasy author, Joseph Sale. How are you doing, Joe?
1: Not too bad. Thank you so much for having me on. Such a pleasure.
0: No, no, not at all. Thank you for coming on. Um, so, we've also been joined by a third guest, in case you are watching the video and may have noticed I've got an apparition that's appeared behind <laughs> me on the wall. Um, which is quite fitting for the episode, I think. Um, Maybe some sort of portal opened up to a parallel dimension, and Joe could speak more about that than I can. (laughs) um, Yeah, Joe, I I just want to get into it. Uh, tell Tell everyone about who you are, what you do. You can do it better than I can
1: oh it's funny you say that because i think authors are all uh, are often terrible authorities on their own um work and their own genre in a way uh, you sometimes have to take that step back and look at things uh, with someone else's eyes but um for what it's worth i am joseph sale as arton said i'm a dark fantasy horror author i'm all about supernatural stuff um intersecting with our real world in interesting ways and um what is the real world well that's that's a concept that we could talk about later uh, because I think it's more wibbly wobbly than people care to admit and that's where the horror comes in um hugely inspired by uh, writers like Clive Barker um and a lot of independent authors as well I actually read way more independent authors nowadays than I do traditional ones um Really uh, excited to chat to you today. Um, I guess if I had to say one thing about my uh, bibliography, um, would be I'm the author of three series. So there's the Illuminad trilogy. There's the uh, Book of Thrice Dead, which is my six book series, which is probably the one that most people have read or heard of, heard of me. Um, and then uh, I'm currently releasing... Uh, with a publisher called Bloodbound Books, who are based in Arizona, fantastic publisher, Uh, released some absolutely amazing uh, horror dark fantasy books, Uh, worked with some really cool writers like Neil Gaiman and Christopher Triana, and I've had the good fortune to get a book deal with them, and I'm doing a series of books set in the Robert W. Chambers mythos of
0: Carcosa. So that's
1: sort of a smorgasbord of my books in a nutshell, Um, but yeah.
0: I believe that your work spans even further than that as well. I think there's some epic poetry in there. I think yeah. you do some editing for people as well. You're a, you're a renaissance man within the writing world.
1: Oh, that's that's very kind. Yeah, also an editor. Um, I've edited some books that have gone on to win some fairly prestigious awards, which is like a real blessing. I uh, work with some amazing authors. Um, I'm, I still uh, do that editing work alongside the writing. And um, I also run workshops uh, on story and story structure in particular. I'm sort of more of a developmental editor, I guess, than a a proofreader. Um, And yeah, I write epic poetry and I have written a couple of nonfiction books on writing craft as well. Um, So yeah, quite, quite diverse. um, But I think that's the joy of being an indie author is you don't have to be Uh, pigeonholed into one thing you can sort of experiment and um, it's surprising sometimes what people respond to like the epic poetry you think who reads that nowadays but actually it got a really good response and and quite a few people took the plunge um, even people who maybe would never normally read poetry so it just goes to show uh, taking the risk putting something out there can um, sometimes really pay off um...
0: And how did this all begin? Like, how how did you write begin? Where did um, where did your love for dark works sort of trickle into your life?
1: Yeah, there's always a moment, isn't there? Um, although, having said that, I think my love of really dark stuff. Began an indeterminate point because I mean, my parents always used to joke that when I watched Thomas the Tank Engine, I was rooting for Diesel and the Truckers. And um, when I saw Snow White as a kid, I was completely intoxicated by the evil queen. And then Obviously you can only imagine what watching the Empire strikes back did to my um imagination as a kid um and seeing Darth Vader for the first time um I watched the Empire strikes first uh, strikes back first which um you know is uh typical of the higgledy-piggledy way that I do things but um yes I I've always been interested in the darkness I've always been interested in the villains and I've always had this draw to it so uh, it's actually hard for me to identify one particular moment but definitely there was a moment where I was interested in a lot of different things uh, forms of creative expression at one point I was very serious about trying to become an actor and I did like a lot of intense drama courses and shows and I was a member of the Bournemouth Shakespeare Players and I was uh, also heavily into sport, and I was I was into all these different things. And but then there was a there was a sort of moment where it really concretized for me that actually writing is what I want to do. And um, I have never looked back since that that early point. Really. Um, what what age that, were you when that was? I think I would I'd say I was about sixteen, seventeen. I think at that moment I realised that drama was great but I didn't want to do that for a living and I was more interested in the words on the page uh, than the performance of the words, if that makes sense. Sure. I became interested in what was behind the performance and wanting to rewrite the scripts and, and you know, have leave my own mark in, in that way. Um, so yeah, my love of sort of writing and, and language, if that doesn't sound too pretentious, sort of Really was sparked, I think, partly by the drama. So I'm very grateful to it for that. But it, yeah, it evolved into something altogether very different. And then I started writing, ser- you know, I'd written poetry and I'd written bits and bobs of things. But I, at around 1617, I really seriously started writing novels. Basically, they were terrible, but <laughs> I was, but I started writing them. So yeah, and then I've I've been writing novels ever since, really, as well as uh, these other things.
0: Wow. So a long time in the game and fresh out the box into the darkness.
1: Yeah, straight straight into the darkness. Although, again, um, there was a, a crossover point, and I can tell you exactly what it was, where everything that I wrote had a dark tinge to it, and I was very interested in gothic fiction in particular, like really fell in love with the gothic classics, The Castle of Otranto, Frankenstein, Dracula, um, some more obscure gothic stuff as well. Um, You know, it helped that I studied Gothic as well at A level, so I, you know, really into uh, that stuff. But that didn't really translate into my fiction. Um, But then there was a moment when I went to university. I would have been about eighteen, and I read Stephen King's *The Stand* for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure this was many people's sort of awakening point. But for me, *The Stand* was a really special book because it it took a lot of the mythic grandeur of the high gothic tales and translated that into a modern setting and i think that although i'd read horror novels and i'd read fantasy novels uh, before then i this was the first time really where those two streams were joined like you know the the mythic grandeur of magic and the supernatural and fantasy and like the modern world we live in today. And I couldn't put those two things together yeah. until I read The Stand and that just changed everything, really. So uh, whatever you say about Stephen King, he, you know, it, it's a pretty special book for me and always will remain. So um, and that really sparked me writing the first what I consider to be my first sort of true novel. Um, that uh, is actually still still in print today. Um, so, yeah.
0: Amazing. Yeah, Stephen King seems to get quite... Uh, I don't know. I get the sense that he gets a bit of a bad rap in the horror community. You could probably I say feel... more about this than me.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know about that. But, I, yeah, I think you're right. And I, I think maybe it's because he, there's a feeling of betrayal because he sort of switched to writing thrillers at a certain point. Um And I don't know whether he's ever quite been forgiven for that. Um, Right. (laughs) uh, I don't know. Maybe it's something else. But yeah, I think... And I think as well, a lot of people felt that the Dark Tower Uh was too much of a mixed bag. Um, And you know we know from the george R. 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 martin situation we know from many other situations that when you get people to invest in this huge big thing um and then you know you don't quite deliver for them um they get very feelings get hurt it gets very personal um and that's maybe that's uh, unfair on the writers but i think it's true um and certainly i i'm the same i feel really burned by george aramain like i almost hold him personally responsible you know it's like, that's like that's way unfair he's like you know he's getting on he's trying to he's probably bored of writing in that world he probably wants to do other things like i i get all of that logically but in my heart i'm like you betrayed me uh, and you've left me hanging you are know, like i'm waiting for my high five 13 years later right um i'm still still waiting so it, it, there is a I think a, maybe a resentment for some, I mean some people say the dark towers the best thing he's ever done and it's it's a masterpiece and it's perfect you know I, I've I've met many people who think that as well but I've probably met more people who say you know that it, it left them disappointed and when you've you've read seven chonking King Stephen King books to get to that point and it's uh, understandable you feel a little bit uh, jaded about the whole thing
0: yeah, I can not say. I've read the Dark Tower, but I did start to watch the film the other week, but it was um it was like nine and a half nine at night and it was more of a kid's film than I thought it would be. It seemed quite aimed. It felt more like a family film than an adult film. Mm. I was in the mood for something a bit a bit meatier, so I left it. But um yeah, that's my only experience of the story.
1: Yeah, it's almost a good film, that film, but um I'm not sure. I actually saw it in the cinema, um, there's a hilarious story about what happened when I was at the cinema, but, but, but it was, um, yeah. Please,
0: please. You can't leave me like that.
1: Oh, so like it was dead in there. It was so dead. And me and my wife went to see it together. she wasn't my wife at that point, but uh, long-term partner or whatever. And we're like, ah, amazing. like, the whole cinema is empty. We'll go, you know, right to the back, right in the middle, get the, like, prime seats. Maybe we'll even be a bit naughty and put our feet up on the back of the of the seats in front, you know. We get there and we realise there was one other couple um, who had had the same idea as us, only they'd taken the naughtiness one step further. And let's just say that she was on her knees <laughs> before <laughs> before I said, could you not? Um, And then they tidied themselves up and uh, we sat and watched a film very awkwardly for 90 minutes. Um, And my wife afterwards was like, you actually said something to them midway through. I was like, this this is a public space. Like a 15 year old could walk in like who really wants to see Idris Elba in the Dark Tower, you know.
0: You were doing a public service.
1: I was doing a public service.
0: I secretly i uh, tell us really <laughs> I think uh, you, you've triggered an old memory for me I, I went to watch I think it was Saw 2 and weirdly I told her story about Saw on 2 the, on the last podcast but, um, <laughs> me, me and my girlfriend at the time we sat down and again the cinema was extremely quiet it might have been Saw 1 but anyway uh, we sat down and some guy sat Right along the road from us, like quite far mm-hmm. along. Um, and you know, when it's that quiet and you're acutely aware of sort of what everyone around you is doing, because there were only maybe three other people in the cinema at the time before the film started, he was acting really, really oddly, um, sort of speaking to himself and moving around. And we were just sort of acutely aware of this strange man down the road from us. And as the film started and people started to be subjected to all sorts of torture, he started to cheer. Um, wow. Yeah, he was basically sort of like rubbing his thighs and getting... Oh, like, no! Yes. Yeah, and me and my girlfriend swapped places so that she was further away than I was. Um, but it just felt like that was going to be the end of our existence on the planet. You know, I was <laughs> like... We've came to watch this sort of torture film, and this nutter with a knife is sat down the row from us, and he's going to, you know, gut everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it made it very, very atmospheric. <laughs> uh,
1: what an intense way to view a film like that. That's uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. It, was
0: pretty, it was pretty out there. I don't know. Maybe it was just a plant to make the film uh, screen, better. But... <laughs> that would be viral marketing way ahead of its time.
1: Way ahead. That, yeah, that so, sounds better.
0: Um, so you said that you pretty much as for as long as you can remember were drawn to dark stories. So, you know, I understand that the, the self-reflection element of this might not be possible, but I get the sense that you're a guy who's thought a lot about I don't know the philosophies of writing and storytelling and why we like the sort of things that we like so why why do you think that so many people like dark things you know you you can talk about why you you yourself are drawn to them but like what's your sense now of having been writing for i don't know the best part of two decades or something like that
1: yeah um i have a very very controversial answer if you're interested
0: I'm very um, that's what that's what we're here for.
1: <laughs> that's what we're here for. A bit, bit of spice. Um well my answer is that there has never been, nor ever will be, a more perfect metaphor for the human condition than the Garden of Eden. Um right. and I think that that mythological story, and bear in mind when I say myth, I I don't necessarily mean, and it's not true. I mean, um, Kamara Swami's once said that myth embodies the nearest thing to absolute truth that can be stated in words, uh, which I think is like uh, your daily dose of profundity. But it it is true that, that real myths, you know, real theological myths are sort of designed to teach us these profound truths about, you know, what it is to be human and, and what we're doing here. And I think that the Garden of Eden really really says it all and there is within us you know the i think the catholic concept of original sin is is like a discrete item like we don't have the time or or space to to unpack that it's it's got a lot of doctrine and other things that surround it which are are maybe not palatable to people but but the like the The scriptural basis for original sin isn't the idea that we're all evil and nasty and sinful and we should feel guilty or anything like that. It's just the idea that from our very origin point, earliest, pretty much the earliest possible point in human history, there's this draw to knowledge and this draw to self awareness, which necessitates essentially a knowledge of evil. Um, And so, I keep in my mind coming back to the garden over and over again in my mind, because I think that is what it is. It's, it's the forbidden fruit. It's the knowledge of good and evil. It's this, this profound test that at some point we failed and we are forever dealing with the consequences of that failure. And then the failure has led to, one could easily argue that we were always meant to fail because nothing would have happened. Nothing would have changed if uh, the forbidden fruit hadn't been taken, right? Like humanity would have entered some kind of stasis and it would have just been the garden forever and nothing would have ever been possible. But um, even so, it is still a failure and there is still this like huge consequence in our, in our psyche for, uh, for having to cope with that. And so, uh, yeah, not the, certainly not the idea that we're all like evil deep down or anything like that, but this idea that there is this deep chink in the armour, this deep crack, this deep flaw that is sort of um, necessitating us to deal with our shadow selves, to deal with all this sort of psychic culture of repression. And um, uh, it's never has it been more beautifully, I think, symbolically represented than than in this this biblical story of the Garden of Eden. You know, I think it's an amazing metaphor Um the Bible is just great for writers. If you're a writer, you want to get ideas. Just read the Bible. Man, I mean it's just like a treasure trove. Uh-huh. <laughs> you don't have to believe it if you don't want to. Like yeah, um, it's yeah, not, yeah. not my place to say what you should or should not believe. Like I have no interest in converting anyone or preaching to anyone, but but like just as a, a mine for veritable awe, Uh it's um it's it's good stuff. Um
0: Yeah, it's a work of literature. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah they call it bible studies for a reason you know and um highly recommend christopher watkins book biblical critical theory if anyone's interested if you if you're like oh i can't read the bible read christopher watkins book biblical critical theory because that will give you the whole it goes through the entire bible story abridging obviously but then like giving a Searingly erudite sort of um, literary commentary on it and its tropes and its themes and and how it works and um, it's a masterpiece of a book and um, it's given me more than more than a few story ideas just uh, reading that book. Um, but yeah, the, the Garden of Eden—it's like an interesting symbol, I think, of the human condition.
0: Um, so that sort of it sort of fits with you being out of box drawn to these things in that you think that humanity essentially um is um it sort of has to be this way that mm. you know part of our humanity is that we have this thirst for um yeah. knowledge outside of ourselves and in searching for that we are going to sort of transgress mm. um rules and overstep boundaries. Yeah
1: it's 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 built into our dna in a way and you know graham hancock had a really uh it's not not just him he, he became a bit of a poster boy for it um because obviously he's got a high public profile right and he had a he wrote an amazing book called supernatural where he basically talked about the forbidden fruit maybe being a metaphor for uh, psychoactive drugs and that there's basically a uh a point in human history, we were around, we've been around for like 200,000 years, according to the sort of latest idea from the scientist. but it's only 150,000 years that we have this sudden breakthrough and basically civilization just happens. And um, there's quite a lot of people, uh, you know, really respectable scientists, along with, you know, journalists and other you know, thought leaders sort of coming to the idea coming around to this idea that maybe it was some kind of um, Ehwas, uh, DMT uh, magic mushroom you know a combination of all of these but basically that these have led to transformations in consciousness uh-huh. transformations in the way we think which changes the way we behave which you know therefore possibly gives birth to this sudden uh, really s- sudden change you know Um Everything happens very slowly in evolution, uh, so um, this this sudden leap forward, like sudden leaps forward like this, sort of don't make sense. So that there's there's trying to make sense of it, they think that this is one possible explanation, and I think it's a really interesting one because again, it's the forbidden fruit is metaphorical, but there are interesting literal ways to interpret it as well. And I think Uh the other um, mythological example I've just thought of off the top of my head is, of course, Pandora's box, which also is a sort of Adam and Eve story of temptation, a story of, you know, Pandora is told not to open the box. She has to safeguard it. But of course, she opens it because that's human nature. Uh, And of course, the box contains all the horror of the world and all the misery and all the shame, but it, it also contains hope. And that's, again, it's like the forbidden fruit, which, you know, knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, there's good is in there as well. Um, There's a price to our self-awareness. Animals are um, not really self-aware. They are, they're, they're they're a part of nature. They're not looking at nature as though it's a separate entity to themselves. Like they're in their environment and they are their environment. Um, But we've, divided our consciousness you know we've we've brought this sword blade down and said this is separate from me i'm a i'm an individual entity and i'm looking and these these things are separate from me and that that primary duality is sort of the source of our power but also the source of all our suffering as well um so
0: okay big stuff yeah, big, big stuff. I knew that you would have some big stuff. Um, <laughs> and it, yeah. in in personal terms, I know that you're saying that the, the the thirst for it was probably there from as young as you can remember. Hmm. Were there any other things that developed it? growing up you know aside from i know you said that stephen king the stand when you were sort of in your late mm-hmm. teens um yeah that was the one that sort of crystallized how you could bring the mythical and the everyday together but do you remember any other sort of key things that you watched or read or any life events growing up that led you to where you are now even though you might not have realized it at the time
1: yeah that and that's a really good question and a really good point as well that we don't always realize at the time how significant something's going to be. Uh, we expect to feel significance, but we don't always sometimes humdrum things turn out to be really important. Um, uh, I mean, my life has been laden with supernatural occurrences, man. Like, um, Oh my God. Like it doesn't stop. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have things when they're children, where they Mm. feel like there could be something and then, it sort of stops once they, well, basically once they sort of hit puberty, start start dating, start, you know, doing you know, becoming an adult, doing all these adult things. Um, but for me, it never did. It sort of kept going. And um, I'm still, like, on this uh, crazy journey with it. Um, so, but as I said, I think the Stephen King thing was really significant because it helped me to understand how I could integrate it as a writer but um and that's been a form of therapy for me because when you have all these sort of supernatural experiences it's very easy to lose your grounding
0: mm-hmm. and
1: you know we've all met those people who you know are are in the theater talking to themselves uh, cheering when people are being tortured or or you know i my one of my favorite ever places in the whole world is glastonbury um but i'm very aware like you know, that there's an energy there that can carry you away if you don't have both your feet planted firmly on the ground. So uh, and equally, by the same token, if you run away from this side of yourself, if you start going down the very rationalist, materialist route of like deny oh, these things don't happen, denying your own experience, denying your own feeling state, that way also leads to madness. That leads to like psychological breakdown and the the shadows tend to rupture the fortress you've built in your mind, you know. So, it's been a really delicate balance for me of like acknowledging these supernatural things, engage even in going so far as to like engage with them. But by the same token, being like a rational person who you know has a family, it's very is hopefully very grounded, and um, the writing has really been that um, liminal intersecting point. I think for me of bringing uh those two things together in a way where they don't destroy each other but actually alchemy can happen and it, it can create something new. So uh bit bit woo-woo but um yeah that that's sort of a, a snapshot of my life and, and I mean if you wanna if you want a supernatural story, I mean I have I've yeah, ten or twenty ten or twenty locked and loaded, um ready Forget to go. Me.
0: Give me one of your early ones, you know, one of the ones that you feel like has um, started to sort of um, shape the stream in the direction in which it's going.
1: Yeah, that's um, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, there's some really heavy ones, but... um... I think like when I think I will go for the heavy one because uh, we are talking about darkness after all dark fiction. And um, this is something that like does change you forever, really. Um, So like massive trigger warnings, if if you're like um, sensitive to like sexual abuse and and kidnapping and stuff like that. But um, so, yeah, it's like turn off now and then like maybe come back in 10 minutes time. But. When I was when I was eleven, I was I was kidnapped and um, by it, bizarrely uh, a group of sixteen year old boys, and um, obviously the, the 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 like it doesn't sound like they're that much older than me, but like the difference between a sixteen year old and an eleven year old is like it's massive. It's yeah. colossal. They were grown men to me, really. Yeah. Um, and um, basically there was this. <laughs> This sounds almost like a fairy tale, but uh, I, I grew up in a really rough area and there was a, a school which has now been closed down because it was so dreadful. But there was a wood just outside the school. And really, they should have. I, I love nature, but they should have cut that shit down. <laughs> but they didn't because they had various uses for it. And uh, they used it, uh, for example, in a biology class. We had this crazy biology teacher called Mr. Limburn. Bald-headed, like the stereotype of an evil scientist in a laboratory. Whatever you're imagining in your head is probably, like, fairly on the money. Like, this bald, domed pate, hair around the side, these, like, half-moon spectacles, almost like a, like, Harry Potter character. Lab coat, always the lab coat. Like, whatever situation you saw him in, even if he was outside of the school, he was wearing the damn lab coat. And he was... he, But he was amazing. He was an amazing teacher. I think if I'd stayed at the school... Um, Like he could have made me into a biologist rather than a writer because just his his passion was so infectious. He kept pet cockroaches and he walked them on leads and he had he had a shotgun um, under the desk which obviously there was always a rumor in the school that it hadn't really been deactivated and it was actually loaded in one lesson I was in, he did actually get it out, point it at a student and pull the trigger when they were misbehaving. And it was like the biggest bully in the school when he, or in our year group, at least And he, um, he literally shat himself. Um, um, Obviously like all of this would, would never.
0: Different different times. It was a different
1: time. It was a different time. (laughs) And to, to be honest, like it wasn't, you know, obviously I'm a fairly young guy. It wasn't like that long ago. He pushed yeah, yeah. envelope
0: yeah.
1: a lot and he only got away with it because he got colossal results. And because even the students who were terrified of him sort of respected him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he attracted students to the school like he was always there on open days, walking cockroaches and doing his crazy things. And obviously kids just love that shit. Like so he was like a he was like a novel, a carnival clown that sort of lured you into the school. Anyway, Mr. Limbaugh, he is very important to the story I'm going to tell, because, as I say, he was one of the only teachers that anyone in the school respected. Loads of teachers ended up beaten up, stabbed. Nobody, there was no order. Nobody respected the teachers apart from Mr. Limber because he had a shotgun under the desk. Right. And he was a crazy guy and you never knew what he was going to do or say. And he used to use this word for biology walks. We'd go out and he'd find some flower or some butterfly or something and tell us about, and it was supposed to be a like nice hands-on break from the classroom. But this wood also also got to put to very nefarious purposes, like you know kids go out there smoke, do you know drugs and stuff, like I mean that's all fairly like harmless in real terms, but it was basically a place where anything that you didn't want to be seen happening happened, and one time, I got taken by these eight guys. they took me out into the woods, they beat the shit out of me, they used stones like club me. Um, to the point where like, I couldn't almost like couldn't talk, couldn't even scream. Like my face was just like a, like a purple football. And, um, the leader of them, he could have been Satan himself. Like I'll never forget his face. And he, uh, he had a three inch Stanley knife and he, he pushed me down and did all kinds of awful things. And, um, he, put the knife to my face, I still have a scar in my hairline. It's of all the injuries that they did to my face. It's really bizarre, but the the scar I still have of the event is it, is that prick of the Stanley knife in my hairline, which I think shows there's a psychological dimension to healing. Right. But anyway, and he said he would, was going to cut my face off and then he was going to come on whatever he found beneath. And I was like fully like, Okay, well this is it. This this is the end. Like I'm I'm gonna die and I'm, I'm gonna die fucking badly. Um And suddenly I just heard Mr. Limburn's voice like you know, ah oh, fucking have you for fucking garters, like just just some some cry and they just like the one person who could have scared them, you know, and they just scattered. And I'll never forget the look he, the leader gave me, like, as he went off. It was definitely like a, I'll be back to finish this, but I never saw him again. Um, But then this is the punchline. The person who emerged from the woods was not Mr. Limburn. It was my friend Rob. Rob, if you're listening, I love you, buddy. Still very close. And he had impersonated the teacher's voice. He was 12 years old. Like he had hidden in the bushes, probably went out to smoke because he started started at about 10 years old, I think, had realized what was happening to me and had the courage and the intellect and the skill to impersonate the one person who they would be fucking terrified of. And he came and he picked me up and he carried me to the medical bay. Uh, well, I, I limped with my arm around the shoulder, like some fucking character from a, a war movie. And, um, it, you know, what then happened as a school was just everything blew up and it was investigated and, and it was, it was all crazy. And the school did manage to survive that controversy, but it, it um it didn't survive the subsequent ones um but they happened long after I left but uh, my friend Rob like um and the reason that plays into the like supernatural is at the moment where the knife touched my face you know as I say I had that thought of I'm gonna die here I'm gonna die really badly and I just like I uttered a prayer like just the most sincere genuine no self-consciousness self-irony just you know a prayer like you know god if you if you can sort me out here if you can deliver me here that would be really great and then the most unlikely thing imaginable happened and so you know to me that was like a moment where it felt like i called out to the universe and the universe responded and um that was life-changing. So although that was a super dark story, and I am sorry if it was too distressing for anyone to hear, but, you know, for me, I I tell it because it's, like, actually a hopeful story for me. Like, in the very worst moment, like, um, someone was listening. Uh, And obviously, you know, I'm very lucky to have an amazing friend, Rob, but, you know, the series of circumstances that put him there are um, quite extraordinary. And so, yeah, that's that's an early you know 11 years old life changing moment where firstly i came face to face with like real nasty fucking evil real evil and pointless evil as well evil always does seem to be completely pointless you know we we in our films we have we have villains who like are doing things for power or for this or for that but like th- this was like an evil that had no reason for doing what it was doing other than maybe pleasure uh but yeah, even the then like for the fun of it yeah mm. for the fun of feeling powerful perhaps um uh you know but but that was defeated by like a superior force of good which um was just a, you know an incredible revelation for my broken 11 year old self so weirdly you know although that's like hugely traumatic i don't I don't talk as if I'm a trauma victim and i don't i i don't necessarily view myself as having been traumatized because actually my my conclusion from that experience is is like an uplifting one and I think to tie this all back into the writing and the fiction you know like darkness exists i think in fiction because it it, it, more you know, the, the black backdrop of night shows the stars shining more brightly. It is a a method and a journey towards that that light, and we can't know the light truly without darkness. You know, you can't know what good is if you haven't faced evil. Um, it sounds corny, but I think it's really true. And so, yeah, for me dark fiction is a way of exploring that. And my favorite horror novels, my favorite dark fantasy novels and novels that are not just like pointlessly nihilistic, but actually show that light in the face of that darkness. And it doesn't necessarily mean the light wins every time, but it's, there is um, a yin yang in uh, mix of the two that is being explored. So that's, that's my story, bro. <laughs> yeah,
0: um, wow. I, no. I, I wasn't expecting that. But Jesus. No. Obviously, um, glad you came through it, and glad that you seem good. Um, having come through something like that, like you said, okay. it's one thing to go through something traumatic. It's it's another thing to remain traumatized by it. So, congratulations yeah, on whatever you've done to to sort of emotionally get past that
1: oh thank you but obviously you know it's it's not me it's all the people i've had around me and i've always been really blessed with amazing friends amazing family um so and and the writing as well is a a a mechanism to deal with this sort of stuff um so yeah i i often joke like i've heard writers sometimes in the past be like if my next book doesn't take off i'll stop and i'm like you have the option of stopping. I I don't have that option. <laughs> the compulsion, the compulsion demands it be satiated. I have to keep going. Um. Yeah. So yeah, even if I'm living in a wooden shack in the woods, I think I'll still be penning manuscripts. You know, in my own, in my own blood or squid ink or whatever. Um. <laughs> uh. I I think well, it's yeah. Jake. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and it will replenish. Um, so.
0: Yeah. Well, ever sustaining. Um. So it's, it's interesting that, I mean, I get the sense, I mean, I'm only on episode two, but having spoken to a decent number of authors just throughout writing, mm. um, it's so interesting that this um, attraction to the darkness can come from maybe a place like yours where someone has been through something truly dark or from having had quite a light life, a light background, but still just having a fascination, maybe just for the sake of contrast towards something like that. So it's yeah. it's it's really, really interesting to me, at the diversity of things that bring us like, yeah. in the sort of same direction. Um, so that... given... Go, go on, sorry.
1: Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was going to say that's a really interesting point because, yeah, it's not the case that every horror author has a story like that. Um, at all, and uh, um, but yet we are still drawn to that side of things. For me, it's very cathartic, but I I think it's um, cathartic for other people too, even if they haven't had that kind of experience. Um, yeah,
0: um, no, I agree. Um, so, g- given that it sounds like, I mean, I know you said there's one of twenty stories, and I not I, I hope, I hope for your sake, there aren't <laughs> any, any uh, other dark ones like that, yeah. but given that, is there anything that's too dark for you? I mean I've I've read a I've read a few pieces of your work and you go to some pretty bleak places. Yeah. Um is there anything like of your own ideas where you've been like, No, no, it's too much or where you've been reading or watching somebody else's work and you've been like No. Not not now or maybe never.
1: That's a really good question. So I'd say there's there's um there's two genres of horror that absolutely scare me shitless that are like like as I say, considering I've been like pretty inoculated to horror, um I remember when my wife was giving birth, um I there was an issue, the doctor couldn't come, I had to help the midwife, and she was like, Oh, you're not squeamish, you? I was like, seriously, like I I you know I don't have any kind of squeamishness at all. Like I can I can get stuck in. And then at the end she was like, you know, lots of guys say that to me, but you actually really didn't, did you? Like you you were just and it was just like, it's just gore and bodily fluids and, and you know, and and, and and stuff. Like you know, my wife is the one actually going through the the, the, the shit, you know, like um so I'm yeah, I'm not very squeamish yet um there are two genres of horror that completely fuck me up and there's one genre of horror a third genre of horror that i actively dislike intensely um God. and then in terms of my own work there have only there have been a couple of times i've walked uh, i think too close uh to the darkness and i maybe if i was writing them now would would change them um i don't tend to rewrite old books I, i've done it a couple of times for very specific reasons but i tend to be like you know that was where i was then i need to keep moving forward and uh, i'd rather much rather write a new thing with what i've learned than go back and fix that old thing um yeah, yeah I, I, I i that's very much my philosophy when i'm working. So yeah, that's so that's a sort of general answer to your question. Um
0: so what are the what are the two genres that get you and what's the one that you're like no?
1: Um so I'll start with the one that I'm just like no because and then we can have the fun part of um of the two that really shit me up. But the one that I'm just can't stand I I call it nasty horror. It's not like an official genre, but it's like things like a Serbian film and things like that. To me it is, as I say, nasty. It it's it's like pointlessly dark. It's it's like a it's like one of those edge-lordy twelve year olds being like like how many bad, like awful things can I compound compound, you know, in one story? And I as I say, for me, I like my darkness to have a point. If you're somebody who really likes that stuff like like fair play to you it's not my place to uh to judge anyone really if they like that or not but like it just it doesn't do it for me I guess I mm-hmm. I like you know I think something like True Detective is fantastic because the first season of True Detective goes like to the very nadir you know it's about like pedophile ring and it's so Jet black, nihilistic, some real, but like all of that is justified by the amazing transformation at the end. A lot of people forget that it ends on a really positive note. And they like they quote Rust Cole and all his atheist statements, forgetting that like it's a massive like Christian revelation at the end. But like such t- such is the way. It's the same with like Dante's divine comedy, right? We all remember the Inferno more than we remember Purgatory and Paradise. Um but yeah that really really nasty type of horror um to me doesn't do it um but in terms of the horror that shits me up carnival horror is like just seems to strike some really deep vein of 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 like uncanny valley of like the the like rob zombie like house of a thousand corpses is, is like i can't even i i, I couldn't turn, i couldn't watch 5 minutes like i'd have to turn it off because it's just so right. so deep in the horror and i don't really know why like i've i've had like a couple of like mildly scary carnival experiences but nothing major so i don't i don't really know where this carnival horror has come from but um mm-hmm. it's there and the other one is Aliens, man. Right. <laughs> something, something about, like, I've got Jordan Peele's note, um on my shelf and I keep meaning to watch it, but I just know it's going to completely destroy me. Um, I just can't bring myself to do it. So wow. there's something about, like, alien abduction maybe that does sort of connect to my experience like as a as a kid i don't know but it something about it goes like really deep into the horror uh for me so um i'm fascinated by it i read like quite a lot of books about you know um conspiracy theories and extraterrestrials and stuff i find it really like it's again great fuel for writing material um but in terms of like watching it on screen. Um, I'm really like struggle with it, and I I don't tend to read um fiction in in that genre um because mm-hmm. it just it's just a bit bit difficult for me.
0: Did you steer clear of the X Files back in the day?
1: Yeah, you see, I've never seen the X Files. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, the X Files had some great sort of um, they sort of have this overarching story that became more apparent as the seasons went on about like this big alien conspiracy but uh, they had some great sort of monster episodes, shapeshifter episodes they've, they've got loads of good episodes in the earlier series that aren't extraterrestrial but uh, yeah it may or may not be your bag you might <laughs> want to select episodes carefully um, yes. I
1: mean it looks really oh. good, I, it has a lot that would draw me to it for sure <laughs> but yeah there is that the constant threat of being probed you know it's just it's just there
0: we all live with it <laughs> um, so moving on to some of the uh questions that i just like to ask to sort of bring some levity to our episodes i'm sorry and this mate. is no 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 this is this is for all of this stuff because we can get really into the weeds with it right um I want you to name three of your favourite dark antagonists from fiction, from film, from from wherever you want, really.
1: Great Um, question. Really difficult. That's like an infuriatingly difficult question. One of them will seem on the surface to be quite predictable, but specifically, book Sauron. Like okay. Sauron in the Lord of the Rings, like I love the films. I think it's a phenomenal adaptation. I think they did so much right. I'm a fan of the film and the books love them both. But one of the things that the film did, I think lose and have, it almost had to sacrifice it because there's already so much going on was Sauron really. Um, he's so much more interesting in the books. He's not just a big flaming eye. Um, he actually has a body uh, for okay. a start Um and there's a lot more in the books of like paralleling Frodo and Sauron. And, you know, by the end, Sauron has nine fingers on his hand because one of his fingers was cut off, of course. And like by the end of the story, Frodo is called Frodo nine fingers. Um, right. and, and Frodo, Frodo's parents died in very suspect and mysterious circumstances, like possibly a murder-suicide It's never explicitly stated, but you know Sauron has had this rupture with Morgoth that sort of left him broken. Like, it's like really weird, but it. it, I guess you couldn't do it in a film in a a convincing way, but it. Sauron in the book is a fascinating character uh, in his own right, and the, his obsession and his his desire is is such that the way people perceive him. When in a spiritual when they're perceiving in a spiritual way like via the palantir or in a dream or something like that is he's represented by an eye because there's no better symbol for desire, right the eye that is just constantly looking, but okay. that's like metaphorical um so that sort of subtlety is slightly lost in the film, so anyway rambling on but but like book Sauron is um a fascinating character um. There's a character called um, Randall Jaff in the Clive Barker, the art series, particularly in the Great and Secret show. He is fascinating. He's like one of those villains who sort of goes on a redemption arc. Um, it, It takes a long time for the turn to happen, but like he's also fascinating um, similarly to Sauron, a man who's, like, consumed by a specific desire, um, and that desire drives him steadily deeper and deeper down a rabbit hole that has no bottom. Um, a really compelling antagonist, um, and, yeah, some of the, like, early scenes with him I'll just never forget. They're, like, imprinted on my brain indelibly, you know, um... And then a third one. A third one. I mean... Like, I'm tempted to go to a film for the last one. I mean, original... Original Vader, obviously, is, like, up there. Like, it, it leaves such an impression upon a young mind, you know? Uh, but obviously, they've, like... every, Everything released after the original trilogy is, like, slowly diluted him. Um but like that the original Vader and okay. all that was like implied, like there are so many like poor decisions that undermine his character. Like for example, like Vader is really old in the original trilogy. And we get the sense that the reason he's like so mechanical is like over these decades and decades and decades, maybe even longer. Cause we don't, we don't know how long Jedi live. Like he's had to replace bits of himself. Not that like one time Obi-Wan cut off like all of his limbs in one like spinny flourish, but like that this is a long thing, you know, he's been doing this all this time and slowly, slowly dehumanized by this process. Um, you know, the way that he has a split personality, basically. Like, you know, I believe he's the son of Anakin Skywalker. and He's like talking about himself. He's like so divorced himself from the other side. We, most of us in the modern world, divorce ourselves from our shadow self. We're like, I'm not that guy over there. He's divorcing himself from the other side. Like, that's just like really fascinating. Um, So, yeah, like original trilogy Vader, I think has to get a mention and um even though i do feel like he's been massively diluted by a lot of stuff that came after there's mm-hmm. something about that original incarnation of him that was just so compelling and then of course and again he goes on an incredible redemption arc that, that ending to return of the jedi blew my tiny mind when i first saw it like, like what luke doesn't kill the emperor like it's not just like a straight up like 1v1 like like vader di- like turns and i think um that connects to something actually really interesting and um, that clive barker once said he said that all epics have only room for three players and uh, this is in the opening of Imagica. um and that's like all my favorite stories always have that three three players at the end like vader luke and the emperor um Gollum, Frodo, and Sam. uh, And then, uh, like, let's go to an indie author like Brian Bowyer, the ending where there's, like, this showdown and there's three and the good, the bad, the ugly. Like, there's something about that, a force of good and a force of evil. And then there's some middle force that is neither good nor evil, that is, not, but not even just grey, because grey is, like, dull. It's almost like they're both good and evil simultaneously. And that's the element of like chaos that you don't know, you don't know which direction that element is going to go, and that creates like fascinating fiction. So, yeah, long rambling answer, but but, OG Vader, Sorry. um, book Randall Sauron,
0: Jaff. Randall,
1: Randall Jaff, no, Randall Jaff, and Randall um, Jaff, and then um, Sauron, book Sauron, yeah.
0: So you may be aware of the little game. That I played with Lee on the last episode. Yeah. It's it's my version of Snog Maria Void, and it's called Stalk, Buried, Destroy. So to lay out the the sort of rationale to people who didn't listen to the last time, um I want you to pick um based on their characteristics, who who out of those characters you, you would preferably stalk. <laughs> so maybe Maybe they're the most interesting of the characters. Mm. You would like to see how they go about their business. uh, Maybe how they came to be that way in the first place. Um, But essentially, you would like them to continue on as they are doing their evil deeds. Um, Then we've got Berry. So, this character you would like to put an end to. You would like to kill them because they are pure evil. But they have enough They have enough redeeming qualities to give them a proper burial and give them some respect. Oh, I see. I see. There are remains. Yeah, it's a a respect thing. Um, And then our third option is to destroy, which means to completely obliterate, to annihilate from all existence. Um, They're too bad. They've got to go and go completely without a trace. So who would you stalk out of those three?
1: I mean I I think I think Sauron actually because Sauron you could learn how to make cool shiny things um
0: <laughs> and who doesn't like cool shiny things cool shiny like
1: like you could learn some shit watching Sauron right you could learn how to forge magical rings and cool weapons and stuff like he's a master blacksmith so um yeah I I think I would stalk Sauron even though he's palpably probably the most powerful and evil of the three, I would stalk him because I, I could glean knowledge from him.
0: So you would be like this hovering eye watching his eye. Watching going... his eye. Yeah.
1: It's very meta, yeah.
0: Uh-huh. So what about burying? Who would you bury? Oh, that's
1: that's tough. I respect both Randall Jaff and Vader, which is probably something I shouldn't say out loud. Um, I think possibly... <laughs> I possibly um Vader like uh but if we're talking like including the prequels like he is like just like a child killer which is sort of so much lamer than um <laughs> you know like that's that's a destroy that that's a like no you don't need to exist but like cool samurai warrior who's been like hunting jedi down for decades like that's you cremate that guy right with a moving John Williams soundtrack. Um, so I think I think yeah, if we if it's it's wrong of me to like divorce Vader from the complete canon. So I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna actually bury the Jaff because okay. the Jaff um, has courage. That's what, one of the really cool things about him as a villain, and one of the things that makes him quite compelling in the Great and Secret Show is like he's not a coward and he, he puts himself time and again into massive danger to accomplish his goals. And he does have goals. It's not just like chaos for the sake of chaos. And then when things get out of control, he does try to rectify things. And again, is courageous. Like he, he puts himself in the fire. So I think like the Jaff deserves a burial. I think they actually do bury him in the book as well. <laughs> So, spoiler alert, sorry, but um yeah, the the jaff gets a burial, which I guess leaves our destroy option. Yeah. Vader Vader Sorry mate, but the younglings really means you have to be destroyed now. So
0: Yeah, you shouldn't you shouldn't have done those other films.
1: Shouldn't you shouldn't have agreed?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Gotta be careful
0: with your image rights
1: you you really do I, he is the most one of the most overused characters like all the comics which i did at one point i was like quite into and then the games and then the and like the like vader has 16 minutes of screen time in a new hope and it is enough it is more than enough like the impact he leaves is colossal and then again empire strikes back like he's more developed in that film but it's it's a colossal impact um but like the more you get of a character like that, who is one, like one of Vader's characteristics that they've all just forgotten about is he has like a real facility for language, um, which is why casting whiny Hayden Christensen was like really, actually I'll put some respect on his name. He had a very difficult job to do a very difficult script to work with. And like, he, he gave it what he could give it. And like, I don't hate the guy. Like he, he seems like a really nice guy. Um, But like, Casting him and writing the script in the way they did is really odd because Vader has like a real gift for humor and like poetry, which like is one of the, again, things that makes him like cool as a villain, like apology accepted, Captain Neda, as he's like flushed out the airlock, you know, like there's a, there's a, a sort of class to him, um, mm-hmm. you know, which is at odds with this angsty teenager. And so, um, Yeah, but the more times they use Vader, the more different writers who are not the original writers are writing him. And the more it's just, it is this process of... Like, the more he talks, the worse it gets. Mm -hmm. Uh, And cleverly in Rogue One, they kept his uh, dialogue to an absolute minimum. And mainly he just stalked about and cut people in half. And that was really a, a a much better use of him um than i've seen but e- even even then i still think like um we don't always need to see him like he's overused and um if you're writing a big long writing if you're a writer like listening to this don't overuse your cool villains like keep them keep them back a bit and then they really make mm-hmm. an impact when they do arrive
0: mm-hmm. just um, a just a shout out to her and christian not that he's listening um an absolutely terrifying thriller that he's in called Awake. Have you seen it? No. Where he uh, he undergoes a heart surgery and gets an anesthetized, but is fully conscious. Oh um, god! Whilst undergoing the surgery, it is horrifying. Yeah, so, recommendation there. <laughs> um, well,
1: med- medical horror is a is a, a third place runner up, I think, to my two unendurable horrors um okay. I, I was already quite woo uh, as you know but um certainly my fear of medical procedures has assisted that in the seeking of alternative um uh, like medicine modalities for sure uh it's like I don't, I don't really want to go to the hospital bad things tend to happen there like um which is not true at all but um there's there's something something there
0: Mhm. Yeah my uh my upcoming book it sort of has elements of medical thriller um mm. I would say it's probably most firmly in the psychological thriller category but you you you'll, you'll see soon enough.
1: Um, <laughs> you will see soon enough Joe when I'll see would... soon
0: enough. It's in, in the next few threat. weeks. It's not a threat. <laughs> <laughs> um so just one more silly question before I move on to a few audience questions. Um if you were going to be any sort of dark antagonist, any class of dark anti- antagonist, what sort would you be?
1: Well, I think it's uh, got to be a wizard. A wizard? Um, I mean, I, I already am an evil antagonist. I mean, I, this should be very clear by now. I've got my origin story and, uh, you know, ready to go. But... Um... But yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the very keen-eyed among your um, viewers will have discerned some quite interesting books on my <laughs> on the shelf behind me. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, fascinated by the occult, and I think um, evil wizards are uh, underrated and definitely um, a, a really, you know, like a an evil wizard can be many things and Mm -hmm. they can be a center of power they can be powerful in themselves but they can also exert great influence over other people and uh, they can command armies and also they can they can do like sort of miraculous and wondrous things even though they may be evil like sauron they can forge the one ring and the elven rings and they can do interesting stuff um so like an evil evil mad genius type wizard i think is um is where i would be for sure uh, not a berserk berserk madman or a serial killer or anything like that i think i would i would go evil wizard
0: interesting i like that as an answer that's left field I, i'd not even considered that as an option <laughs> I like what were
1: much. you thinking in terms of options what were you
0: I don't know, like you say, serial killers and werewolves and um, ghosts and demons, mm, you, you yeah. know. So, yeah. an evil
1: wizard, you can be Psychobots. all of those things, right?
0: I guess you could, yeah. <laughs> yeah they're, they're, they're not exclusive categories, I guess. I'm yeah. Learning as I go.
1: You could be a werewolf um, serial killer. That would be, uh <laughs> That would be. Is that, a,
0: is that a serial killer who is a werewolf or a serial killer who targets werewolves?
1: Oh wow! Both are an excellent premise for a story. Why not have? Why? Oh my god! You could have both in a story. Yeah, like a guy who like kills only werewolves, but then there is a werewolf who is also a serial killer, and so then like the two their two paths cross. Like I, I I don't know spitballing that that could be. That could be a TV series, couldn't it?
0: I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, werewolves were massive a few a few years ago, weren't they? So maybe we Ooh. can uh, bring them back.
1: Just need a guy with suitable pectorals to uh, to carry the lead role. That's all you need.
0: Hey, Michael J. Fox did a decent werewolf back in the eighties. Well, the pecs, I'll have you know. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you ever see Teen Wolf? Team one. Teen Wolf.
1: Teen Wolf, no.
0: No, yeah, he, he was like a high school werewolf.
1: That's—I've never heard of this. Nope. This is amazing.
0: It's like a sort of eighties family um, comedic. It's not—it's not a—not it's a, not a scary one. But, <laughs> yeah, Mike, Michael J. Fox, some of his finest work.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> he will be remembered forever. That,
0: yeah, t- take that however you will. <laughs> um, so I've got—I've got a few audience questions that uh, people have asked of you. Um, i'll start with one from thomas who's asked what are the things that you don't do because they would hinder your writing
1: that's a great question thomas uh, thank you um i think actually what uh, thomas has really hit on something really interesting that um is just a general i know you're not the biggest fan of self-help but um one one concept um in the self-help world, which I think is very valid and very true is often when people are thinking about success, they think, what do I need to do to be successful? But I've really found that it is almost, almost more about what you stop doing um, than actually what you start. If you start stripping away the the noise and the chaff and the wasted, the time wasting and the things that drain your energy and um diffuse your focus if you actually start cutting that stuff away so success starts to just happen in and of itself it's like less about so it's less about what you do and more about what you don't do so writing i think is really the same um y- you know not necessarily even not doing things but certainly moderating things um is really uh important um one um big thing i think is I don't watch much TV. Um I don't I'm not trying to sound like oh I don't watch TV I'm like so you know I love watching a good program but I I choose a program to watch and I watch that program. Um with a baby I don't watch anything at all but that's a that's a different situation. But in terms of like if that you don't have that you know picking something to watch and watching it is meaningful, it's got intent. I'm watching this, I'm engaged with it. I want to see what happens. I want to see what I can learn from it. Whereas just having the TV on Mm -hmm. is I think where things start to go wrong and one hour turns into two, into three, into four, and then your whole evening's gone. And then suddenly, um, you know, most people are working nine to five jobs. I'm really lucky. I now work for myself and I write and edit full time. But um, when I wasn't, when I had a job, you know, you come home at five or six and you are tired and you, you do just want to stick the TV on, but... If you can um, strike that balance between looking after yourself and nourishing yourself and being productive in the evenings, then um, you will feel so much better about yourself. And actually, writing, uh, I find, energizes me um, in terms of there's like different types of energy, right? There's like physical exhaustion. It is actually physically tiring to write. I don't know if you find that, but I, I certainly do but it's emotionally and spiritually energizing. If I've written in a day, I think, wow, I've I've achieved something today. I feel like, you know, wired from it, a little bit high from it almost. It is, it's it's like a natural high, that feeling of creativity and productivity. Um, So yeah, I haven't really specifically answered. Um, I've, I've said TV, which I guess is like a fairly generic answer in a way, but I think it's more about um it's not even necessarily about what you cut out or stop doing but it is about um doing things with intent mm-hmm. and from that point uh things start to um flow certainly one thing in order to do writing is you do have to prioritize it so I guess what you stop doing is um you stop putting other things first before the writing. Um, it You have to be a bit, I guess, egomaniacal about it. You have to say, you know, I'm committed to this thing. But the way I always view it is that I am a much better person when I'm writing. When I stop writing, I stop processing a lot of these things that we've talked about earlier in the call. Um, I stopped feeling creative. I stopped feeling, you know, like productive. Not that I think, oh, you have to be productive. You can just be. uh, And that's another self-help thing that um, I think actually has a lot of validity. You know, you're not only valuable because you're productive. But fundamentally, I think human beings, we are actually driven to be productive. And again, in the Garden of Eden, um, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful. Okay, yeah, you can interpret it literally as have kids, but actually just be fruitful. Look at the bees. Look how happy they are absolutely fucking loving life just making as much fucking honey as they can like that's the happy and natural state um you know we've all met that person who has not worked in a really long time they've not had any structure in their day and you know things start to go kind of wrong when we don't have this um you know this productivity even it doesn't have to be a job productivity or working productivity but just something you're passionate about and committed to um so, yeah, for, for me, stop putting other things in front of the writing would be my second answer to that question. Um, it, it You have to really say it's the number one priority. And in doing that, you will facilitate your family. You'll facilitate your friends. You'll facilitate all your relationships. You'll facilitate your career. I mean, I, I could cope with the jobs I was doing before I worked for myself through writing. I was a better employee as well. <laughs> um because i had this outlet, because i had this feeling of um self-worth and all all this really important stuff as a result of doing the writing so um yeah M- like automatic tv i think is is one thing and and putting other things before the writing is another um mm-hmm. if that's not too generic
0: no no not at all um I have a question from... I have two questions from uh, our resident troll, who is a friend of mine.
1: Um, <laughs> every he give, needs one.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, given that you're a dark fantasy author, he has asked what your deepest, darkest sexual fantasy is. I'm not going to ask you that, but I am going to direct him to your short story that I read called Mallard's Maze. Maybe <laughs> that'll give him some insights. Um... <laughs> So yeah, Jim, you can uh, you can go and dig that out of its an anthology. I
1: I got um. <laughs> I got known for that story. Um, Did you really? It, it I won't I won't say because I don't want to spoil the surprise. No, but, no, no. But no. there was a there was a nickname that was given to me off the back of that story, and there are some uh, people in the sort of horror extreme splatterpunk extreme horror community who still refer to me. By that nickname, I've never quite uh-huh. lived down that story, so um, that's really funny. Um, that you brought, I did not expect you to bring up that story. I,
0: I didn't expect to be asked that question by the audience, but with Jim in the audience, uh, I, I should never put anything off the table. <laughs> um, I, I will. I will wrap this up now by... I know that I didn't... I don't think I really framed this podcast apart from saying the title, you know. The the sort of premise that I came up with for this podcast is, like, asking "Well, what, what the fuck is wrong with us. Like, why why are we drawn to these sorts of stories? And I, I realised that um, maybe there's nothing wrong with us at all. But... But... There may well be. <laughs> um, and I know... <laughs> I know that we've done a, a bit of an examination of your, your past and what's brought you to these points, so I want you to sum up before we go, in one sentence, what the fuck is wrong with you that you create these stories?
1: Wow, yeah, that's a, that's a big one, that's a bold ask, and um, one sentence... What the fuck is yes. wrong with me? Oh, that's the kind of negative self-talk, you know, that I don't need in my life. It's just kind of low vibes, man. Um,
0: <laughs> what the fuck? I'm bringing is you th- down into the gutter with me.
1: I, I, I tell you what. I, I won't do one sentence. I'll do one word. Desire. And I'll say it like pinhead. Desire. Um. Yeah, that's. That is what the fuck is wrong with me. Um...
0: I think that's a remark on what, what is maybe wrong with humanity going <laughs> back to the Garden of
1: Eden. Certainly, that is uh, what Buddha would say.
0: So, can you let everybody know where they can find you, your work?
1: Very kind, yeah. I uh, am on um, Twitter, Um how much longer Twitter will exist, we don't know, but I'm on it for now, uh, at Joseph Wordsmith. Um, I have a website, which is themindflayer.com, and okay. on that site, you can uh, drop me a line. You can get a free ebook book uh, novella from me called Angel of Dark Mercy, which is... Um, um great little story that, and it's the first sort of book in the sequence of thrice dead so it's a really good um example of my work like if you if you don't like it then I'm probably not for you but if you do then um you know great uh, there's plenty more where that came from so it's a good way to test for free if you if you like my work so yeah themindflayer.com is my website that's probably the next uh, the best place to find me um but I am on twitter as well I have a youtube channel but I don't upload to it very often because um it's quite hard to do video editing now I'm a dad and uh, uh like soundproof rooms um quite an investment and um yeah. so yeah recording's quite difficult but I I got lucky today uh, with the the way our schedules work but um yeah, uh I do have a YouTube channel as well, which is just Joseph Sale, uh, and I upload sort of videos that explore uh magic and uh, occult ideas, which are quite um, as I've said, I'm quite fascinated by and quite central to my work and my sort of way of thinking about things. Um so yeah, three three locations you can find me. Um and obviously all my books are on Amazon, as as per usual, that we, we have to um acknowledge the great beast and appease it in order to continue with our literary sound
0: like Sauron
1: <laughs> who knows it, he was known for his industry after all, very productive place Mordor um, <laughs>
0: oh, man, thank you for joining me um, it's been a good chat and thank you for sharing you know you went into the depths to share something that I wasn't expecting so I hope I I hope I received it well um, yeah. but yeah no, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh,
1: thank you. such a pleasure to talk to you too, Arton. I love this channel and um, I think it's such an amazing premise and I, I can't wait to see who else you get on here. And, and yeah, you're a very compassionate listener. So um, thanks for letting me come on and drop that absolute fucking bombshell um, and, um, and for listening to me rabbit on about villains and stuff. It, it's it's amazing questions. It's been a great time.
0: Oh, thank you. And thank you to everybody who's watched and listened Uh, We'll be back with another episode soon. Okay, thank you.
1: Awesome. Cheers.